1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking former British Prime Minister David Cameron how is Brexit Britain's reputation faring in the world?
0: Tough things are being said on both sides and tough positions taken on both sides and I I ideally hope that we'll reach a deal and we'll never have to talk about this bill ever again.
1: The piece of legislation he never wants to talk about again is the Internal Markets Bill going through Britain's Parliament this week. It's controversial because the current Prime Minister Boris Johnson has declared himself ready to breach international law in certain circumstances if a trade deal isn't agreed and kept to. So is David Cameron, who led the losing campaign to remain in the EU in 2016, now worried.
0: There's every reason to believe there can be a positive outcome, and with that positive outcome, steps have been taken to make sure the Northern Ireland peace process continues. So I think I would be asking for some... um, strategic patience while these arguments are played out.
1: And what does he make of Boris Johnson's handling of the crisis? Every
0: day as Prime Minister, even in sort of normal times, you have four or five difficult decisions you've got to make perhaps each day. When you've got this, you are making decisions
1: on the hour. And of course some of them will seem inconsistent. So I'll be asking a former Conservative Prime Minister whether he thinks the present one has been making good decisions or putting Britain's international reputation on the line. I'll also be asking him, a bit irreverently, whether he ran a chumocracy, only nice to his posh friends. David Cameron, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be with you.
1: One of the central themes in For the Record, your book, is the UK's relationship to the rest of the world. You call yourself a passionate globalist and you write this. I believe in working with other nations because it's right for our nation. I care about our relationship with other countries precisely because I care above all for our country. How do you think the UK's relationship with other nations has changed since you left power in 2016?
0: Well, I think we've seen some extraordinary global events that have made a a huge difference to the way international relations work, not least um, the the COVID pandemic. But even before that, I think we were seeing a much more difficult global picture in terms of engaging. We had a Russia that was doing dreadful things, not just in Europe, but also occasionally in our own countries. We had a more aggressive Chinese leadership, uh, an American president who was putting America first and less keen on global engagement. So the whole picture of trying to do things internationally to get things done has been a a, a lot harder. Um, But that doesn't mean it's not still the the right thing to do. What I was trying to say in my new preface to the book is uh, we should recognise the changes, not be naive and think you can just carry on uh, with global institutions and global engagement as they are. We've got to get to the source of the problem, um, which I think a lot of it is about Uh, understanding people's misgivings about globalisation, those areas and people that have been left behind, uh, and making sure we do better to correct that. And that will help us not only domestically, but actually help us as we try to make the case for global engagement.
1: We ran a piece in May in The Economist entitled Has COVID-19 Killed Globalisation? And we heard how the flow of people, trade, capital, all were being slowed by the pandemic. Wave goodbye, the piece said, to the greatest era of globalisation. Worry about what is going to take his place. Do you worry?
0: Yes, I do. You know, All the biggest problems we face, whether it's climate change, the need to uh, deal with inequality in the world, tackle global poverty, uh, ensure peace, all these things require global cooperation. But I'm always a sort of optimist and take the view, yes, okay, the global order isn't working very well at the moment, but that means we need to change and do things differently. Uh, I think the mistake would be to just think, Uh, if a few elections go a different way, if uh, Brexit gets done and gets over with and someone else occupies the White House, we can just go back to the world as it was before. I think that's not the case. I think we have to recognise the shortcomings of various global institutions. We have to reform them. We have where where necessary to replace them. And I think all leaders need to recognise that as you deal with these issues, you do need an emphasis, uh, perhaps a course correction, not to back back to national uh, you know, nations first, but a sense that these institutions are there to serve nation-states and not the other way around. And I think some of these institutions have perhaps
1: forgotten that. And what role then does Brexit play very broadly first in that? Do you believe it's been disruptive in terms of the perception of Britain in the world?
0: Well, I still think it's... Um, the wrong approach in that I think Britain, our interests are being engaged in all multilateral organisations to try and get the best deal for our country and the best outcome for our country and we can't change our geography and obviously I think that Brexit is the the wrong approach. But nonetheless I'm not one of these people that thinks that, that we can't make a success of these new arrangements. Um, we're going to have to make sure that we are uh, good friends, neighbours and partners to the EU Rather than members. And I think once we've got this deal in place, that is perfectly possible to do. And we should continue to use our influence in other organisations. We're very fortunate that we're in the G7, the G20, the Commonwealth, NATO. Uh, we can use all these organisations to make sure that we protect and promote uh, our, our own interests.
1: You so say once you've got a deal in place, but it would appear at the, at the moment that the prospect of not reaching a, day, a deal, that's a post-Brexit deal on trading arrangements with the EU, which is the big casus belli going on at the moment in Britain, and between Britain and the and the EU. How optimistic are you that there will be a deal?
0: I am optimistic, actually, because the way I look at it, if you stand back for a second, you can see the what looks like the last two areas of disagreement are over fishing rights and state aid. Now, these are important issues, but... Uh, It must be possible to reach agreement on those two things. I mean, uh, obviously, Britain can't have an absolute carte blanche to subsidise its own industries in whatever way it wants, if it wants to um, be able to trade tariff and quota free with the European Union. Why would a Conservative government want to uh, overdo the extent of state aid that you're allowed to put in place? And on the other hand, it would be ludicrous if the EU was to insist on exactly the same fishing rights in British waters that they had when we were in this organisation now we're out of it. So it seems to me if you take those two issues, it should be possible with good faith to reach an agreement and get a deal which is in both our interests. And then, as I say, the task for British politicians will be to try and work out how best to partner with the EU when it comes to a vital global issues. And look, if we were a tiny European country, that would be very difficult. But actually, if you take, for instance, the issue of, say, security in the Mediterranean and the need to uh, deal with people smugglers and illegal movement of people, you know, who's got the biggest aid budget, the biggest navy, uh, the most capable defence, diplomatic relationships, etc, etc, as a partner for the EU, well, that would be the United Kingdom. So I, I do think you know, once we move to this new world, uh, we can make it work, even though it's not the one that I would have favoured.
1: The internal market bill has just cleared its first hurdle in the UK uh, Parliament. It clearly does go against terms of the withdrawal agreement, which was signed last year by the UK and the EU, by Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. You have said you've got misgivings about Boris Johnson's uh, tactics there in basically appearing to resile from Things that he signed up to and guarantees in the withdrawal agreement, uh, misgivings. It's a sort of halfway house word. How strongly do you really feel?
0: Well, I, I did take a different line on this compared to uh, my fellow ex prime ministers um, John Major and Tony Blair, who wrote a very forthright article. A lot of which I agree with, but I, I see it in this context. We are in a negotiation with the EU, trying to get a, a deal, and. I think that's the context in which to see this. And when I look at what the government's done, uh, yes, they have proposed a law which they might or might implement depending on what circumstances might or might not come to pass. And if all those things happen, then it might or might not involve doing something that Britain shouldn't want to do, which is to breach international law. But there's an awful long way to go before that happens. And of course, if we get a deal, it won't happen. So I chose to see it in in, in that way, as it were more of a a, a tactical move by the um, British government. And I want the British government to succeed in this negotiation. So I've tried to avoid giving a sort of running commentary on the tactics that they're employing. But I did make very clear that, you know, when it comes to something like this, actually breaching international law, bypassing an act of parliament in this way should be a last resort and not a first thought, as it were. So I, I tried to set out my views in that way. And that's why I used the phrase that I did.
1: You don't think you're having your cake and eating it there because things are always a last resort if you want to do them?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. Because obviously, there's look there are different approaches the, the government could take. If you're really worried that you might be treated in such a way as to uh, override the way our United Kingdom works, then In the last instance, you should make clear to your European partners that, you know, we would have to contemplate doing everything and anything in order to stop that from happening. But obviously, one would want to try conciliation and argument and reason before doing anything else.
1: There's a bit of a tension, isn't it, between the view that this might be, as you say, last resort, it's all fair in love war and EU negotiations. But Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has said today, with every day that passes, the chances of a timely agreement start to fade. She says it's a matter of law, trust and good faith. So I mean, someone is playing brinkmanship more than someone else. Who?
0: It's a negotiation. Both sides are um, playing hardball. Obviously, the EU wants the best possible deal it can get on fish and level playing field, and the UK wants the best deal it can get on fish and level playing field. I, I just hope, and I don't want to, I'm not overstating my role in all this as, a, as, a, as someone looking back at it, but, you know, there's no reason why a deal can't be done if those are the two remaining areas that there are, and so, therefore, let's not do anything to get in the way of sense prevailing and a deal being done. And I think the EU uh, knows that and the UK knows that.
1: How important is it, for instance, that other pressures are mounting on Boris Johnson, that the perception of this isn't just as a negotiating tool. It's that it is the Britain which is prepared to renege on international agreements it has signed very recently, Lord Keen, uh, the government's, the UK government's law officer for Scotland, has offered his resignation uh, just uh, before we started talking to you today. In the, it, it does seem quite extraordinary to end up in this position where you have such a, a challenge to the authority of the Prime Minister and the way that he's seen by many to be playing fast and loose with international law.
0: What The way I see it is... As I say, there's this negotiation going on, which I hope is successful when it's concluded, either with a deal or without a deal. That'll be the moment, I think, to look back and ask and argue whether the tactics employed to get there were the right ones or the wrong ones. And I I don't really want to get into a debate about what tactics the government should or shouldn't employ right now. Does
1: it not then impact on this view of Britain in the world that you've gone to great lengths and you could have done other things with your life after being prime minister? You talk a lot about Britain's respect and position in the world, but this seems to be more an example where you should say, well, "Well, Boris Johnson just kind of negotiated. He can, if you well, like, no, ride no, rations over I, him, I, there. must be a price to be paid."
0: Of, of course, look, the respect for the rule of law and our, the way our rule of law works is is one of the most valuable things that we have as a country. One of the great things about Britain is that if you set up a business or an industry there, the law is impartial. You can take the government to court and win, and that's frustrating when you're Prime Minister, but you know, how many countries can you really say that about? So it is a valuable thing. uh, In what I've said about the Internal Market Bill, I've just tried to respect the fact that vital though this is, there's a negotiation which is a once-in-40-year negotiation going on uh, where tough things are being said on both sides and tough positions taken on both sides. And I ideally hope that we'll reach a deal and we'll never have to talk about this bill ever again because it will be irrelevant because we'll have a deal and the arrangements will work as they should. And I suspect that is probably the Prime Minister's view as well.
1: How much do you think Boris Johnson really wants a deal? There are uh, quite a lot of some evidence from those close to him that doesn't care that much, actually, he'd prefer a no-deal outcome.
0: I, I think he does. I, I mean, I don't, have, sorry, I don't have any special insight here, but Boris is a rational, intelligent person, and I'm sure he wants a deal, because ultimately, while there are costs of a no deal for both sides, you know, there, there are significant costs for the UK. The last thing we need right now is, is economic disruption. And I think that the government has got into a position where a deal is possible. As I say, the last two areas we're talking about, state aid and fish, are uh, soluble, are solvable, are dealable with. And so that's what uh, I'm sure he wants to do.
1: You came to power not so long after, at least you were on the way really into power as the... the aftermath of the Good Friday peace agreement was being signed. That was in 1998 and it marked the effective end of the troubles at a large scale in in Northern Ireland. So a lot of fears expressed in the US where we have a lot of listeners and the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi reflected it this week that, that this was unacceptable to deal with the withdrawal agreement in a way that could endanger the terms of that very valuable peace agreement and that that in turn could endanger a trade deal with the U.S. What did you make of her comment? Well, I,
0: I quite understand why people in the U.S. might want to make that point. I think if I was sitting with them, I would say, first of all, uh, respect for the Good Friday peace agreement is absolutely cross-party in the United Kingdom, that the government doesn't want to do anything to put it at risk. Uh, that at the same time, the government's involved in a very difficult negotiation with the EU, where it wants to make sure that Britain is respected as an independent nation state as it leaves the EU. And this leads to tough negotiations and tough positions on both sides. But there's every reason to believe there can be a positive outcome. And with that positive outcome, steps have been taken to make sure the Northern Ireland peace process uh, continues. So I think I would be asking for some um, strategic patience while these arguments are played out. And I think that that would get a reasonable hearing.
1: So would it make or break a US trade deal, in your view? Because it ultimately, I suppose the charges it undermines something we've reflected in some of uh, the commentary that we've done at The Economist, so that it overall undermines the UK's credibility in future trade deals, any trade deals, and that would decrease the chances of, of a big deal. What do you reckon? I, I'm
0: not sure I do... Um, agree with that as I say if look if the deal is done and this bill is effectively sort of taken off the table and this episode is forgotten about um, the question you're asking is how much lasting damage is done by the fact that it was ever put on the table in the first place
1: well some people think considerable damage
0: yes I I think look as I say it, it should be a last resort not a first resort I wouldn't necessarily have gone about it this way But I think that the UK will probably get a fair hearing when they try and explain just how difficult this negotiation was and just how much of a concern there was that somehow the integrity of the United Kingdom wouldn't be respected in a no deal situation. So I think, you know, politics and government is all about explaining um, and you have to go on explaining and explaining and explaining and I think... That 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 is possible. Look how easy it's going to be to do a deal with the trade. deal with the U.S. is is a, is an entirely different
1: matter. Uh, put aside your natural talent as a diplomat, Mr. Cameron. What does it tell us about Boris Johnson? W- what does it tell us about the way that he goes about politics, is maybe as opposed to the way that you would go about Conservative politics?
0: Um, it's a very difficult question. I mean, we're two different people. Look, I was. I mean, people sometimes compare this negotiation to my negotiation and say that I should have played a a hand more toughly. The argument I would make is I was trying to negotiate to stay in an organization and win the goodwill of that organization for changes that I thought would help um, Britain feel more comfortable in the European Union and that's why I went about the negotiations in the way I did. This of course is a different negotiation where we are trying to leave an organization that we have belonged to for 40 years. Obviously that's not my policy but they are different negotiations and possibly requiring quite different uh, approaches. So as I say... They're different
1: negotiations. They're different, Prime Minister. What are the strengths and weaknesses of Boris Johnson?
0: Well, I think the strength of Boris Johnson is that he has a very intelligent mind. He's very quick on the uptake. Uh, He won a stunning election victory. He's got a big mandate behind him. He knows that he's got you know, three mammoth tasks he's got to get right, and they are dealing with COVID, delivering a Brexit deal, and then the levelling up agenda that makes sure that Britain, at least, is doing more to respect the fact that globalisation hasn't worked for every person in every part of the country. And I think... OK, that's you know, the good the stuff. What about the less good stuff? is, well... Well, that's not for me to say. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't. I'm not coming on your podcast. To, well, you know um, him
1: pretty well. Give my critique
0: of, I, I know him very well, and and I think you know. We're
1: all of one generation in politics. You've watched his rise. You must have also seen the last good sides of Boris Johnson.
0: I obviously have some things to say about the choices he made uh, over the referendum, where I was very disappointed that I didn't persuade him to make the right choice, and I've said all that in the book. And I don't resile from that at all. I mean, I think, you know, my, my problem with Some Boris is that said, you know, he had... He it had, has been
1: said he's untrustworthy. It, what about the charge he's untrustworthy?
0: Well, I always worked with him very effectively when he was bear, I was prime minister. Look, my disappointment was that he hadn't argued for leaving the EU... In, in the past. And so when there was a better deal on the table, and of course he wasn't satisfied it was a good enough deal, but there was a, undeniably a better deal on the table, I couldn't understand why one would then go from that position to leave. And so that was, that is my critique of Boris and it's set out in the book. And we've moved on from that. The referendum was held. The leave side won. We've had an election with a very big majority uh, to deliver Brexit. Uh, I spend my time trying to, in as much as I interact with Boris, of thinking of things Helpful advice I can
1: give rather than uh, critique. You said you didn't regret holding the referendum, but the complexities have multiplied, haven't they? And they're still multiplying. And you'd be perhaps only human if you didn't wake up in the middle of the night thinking, or you wouldn't be human if you didn't wake up thinking, kind of, I wish I hadn't done that.
0: I think in the book, I, I try and explain that there are, there are many regrets I, I have, uh, particularly I allowed the expectations of what could be achieved in a negotiation to rise much too high, and and you know that's my responsibility, something I got wrong the The reason for saying what I've said about the referendum itself is I couldn't then and I still struggle now to imagine a future for Britain when we didn't have this question of a referendum and a renegotiation. I felt it was becoming inevitable, and actually, one of the things I put in the preface is you know, even if we hadn't had a referendum, try and imagine what would have happened during the COVID crisis, when the EU puts forward a £500 billion fund to be paid by everybody, uh, this would have been another moment when Britain would have said, hold on a second, we shouldn't be paying this, we're not in the Eurozone, this should be a Eurozone fund, but at the same time, because we are leading members of the internal market, and if this money is going to be spent on internal market purposes, we need to have at least some understanding of oversight of, of, of what is being proposed. And Brussels would have thrown their arms in the air and said, this is more special pleading for Britain, more of a special place for Britain. And right at that moment, the whole argument for, can we have a future in this organisation?, that is being quite driven by the single currency when we're not in it, would have come up all over again. So th- so my view is it, it was, I couldn't see a future without a referendum.
1: Here's another crisis point, really, that rose during your time at the helm is Scotland, and it is something that's back on the political cards with discussion of Scottish independence and some rising support north of uh, the border. Uh, 2014, narrowly, Scotland voted to stay in the UK. I remember personally, because we, we spoke to shortly before, I don't know if you remembered, but it was a very intense time for you. We could see how worried you were about it and you you put everything into pulling back from that and it worked. Do you think that there could be another independence referendum soon, depending on what happens with the post-Brexit trade deal and are you concerned about an independent Scotland?
0: I would certainly make the argument that it's not justified to have um, another referendum. Those, Those wanting a referendum said it was once in a lifetime, once in a generation, and I think we should hold them to that. But that said, I think you know those of us who care about the united kingdom have got to think harder about what we can do to make this family of nations work better how can we show the genuine respect we hold for the fact that it is a voluntary union of of, of four nations and i think that needs to be a big focus in the years ahead
1: one of the major themes of your premiership necessarily so was what to do in the wake of the financial crash and so called austerity was the government's position re- reducing the structural deficit or in plain terms, spending cuts. And the age of responsibility, I remember you saying at the Conservative Party Forum in 2009, was giving way to the age of austerity. Gosh, those were the days when the word austerity was sort of used with, with pride. Well, I suppose the obvious challenge now is that when Boris Johnson says he's turning the page on austerity, he's planning to raise spending, and now there's been an even greater spending splurge in the COVID era. Was it an overreaction in the wake of 2010 that caused a lot of damage, wasn't necessary in hindsight?
0: No, I don't think it was an overreaction. I think it was necessary. Remember, when I became Prime Minister, we were forecast to have a budget deficit of 11%. It was going to be the biggest in the world. And I think, I explain this in detail in the book, I think really the strongest argument for fiscal responsibility is ultimately that you must make sure that your ratio of debt to your GDP is at a level where future governments and future generations can cope with whatever crisis comes along. You don't know what it's going to be. Is it another financial crisis, a recession or a pandemic, a health emergency, which is what we've had. And I think that in itself is a justification for when the the sun starts to shine, it's time to fix the roof. And that's what we did. And, you know, I would say to doubters, you know, look at the evidence that by the end of the 2010 to 2015 parliament we'd created 2 million jobs we were the fastest growing country in the G7 uh, we were attracting inward investment from around the world you know the policy worked and we did make sure that the debt gdp ratio stayed at a tolerable level
1: do uh, you don't think it's going to be harder for future conservatives who sold fiscal responsibility spending less than the other guys to the left after this when people have worked out that the magic money tree well turns out to be a forest when it suits us
0: well, I think what we did was we delivered a program of fiscal responsibility while protecting the poorest in the country and inequality came down and we protected uh, for instance uh, low-paid public servants um, by making sure that the pay cap didn't apply under a certain level and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. In answer to the question what now and is it going to be difficult for a party of the centre-right to argue for fiscal responsibility in the future I think right now, interest rates are low, so it's not painful financing your deficit. We're not suffering um, the end of a sort of splurge of, of debt and borrowing. We're suffering because we, rightly in my view, had to close down economic activity to deal with the health crisis. So I think the right response is not to change policy very rapidly. But that said, you know, there will come a time when, because our economy is going to be smaller than it was and tax revenues are going to be lower than they were and public spending pressures are going to be higher than they were and we can't always guarantee that interest rates will be this low, you know, there will be difficult choices in the future. And and I, I hope that conservative governments of the future including, will always including potential tax well, I think rises. Conservative governments have always got to, you know, bear in mind that good stewardship of the public finances, making sure that you fix the roof when the sun does start shining. Um, making sure that uh, you keep control of these things is important. And I I hope we don't give up making those arguments, and I'm sure we won't.
1: During your six years in power, Afghanistan was the military campaign dominating shaping British politics, but also the the wider role of of Britain as as a power projecting global power and intervention. In 2013, you said UK troops could withdraw, as they then did the following year, knowing it was mission accomplished. Always fateful words in, in these matters, it turns out. Well, this week we have the Afghan government calling for humanitarian ceasefire with the Taliban. there being peace talks, but it, it grinds on. The country doesn't have basic level security. The war is still killing or wounding scores of civilians every week. We've called it the permanent war. And many advocates of intervention might have doubts that, that this has worked.
0: You know, you can't keep foreign troops on foreign soil forever. You needed to have a program of investing heavily in Afghan security and handing over responsibility uh, to them. And uh, I think that was the right approach. If we hadn't done that, we might still have thousands of British troops still in Afghanistan and we wouldn't have made much progress. The The agenda that was necessary was really two things. One was investing in Afghan security, which has um, been successful to a point. The second agenda was trying to have a peace process um, that involved you know, those elements of the Taliban that would accept at least the basics of the Afghan constitution. A- and that process has been far slower. It is now moving a little bit faster, but that that in ways of you know, regrets and disappointments, why couldn't um, Obama and I and others try to get that process going faster? It was incredibly difficult, but that was necessary. The troops had made Space for that to happen, and we needed we needed that to happen faster.
1: Mm. But a wider question is really whether the days of UK military intervention on anything like that scale are over. You tried an intervention, a supported intervention in Syria. I think you did. You feel you were slightly let down by Barack Obama over that.
0: I think with Syria, that you know, rightly people say Iraq points to the dangers of intervention. Well, Syria does point to the dangers of non-intervention. I mean, we didn't, in my view, do enough right from the start to try and back. Uh, legitimate, democratic, pluralistic Syrian people against the butchery of Assad, and the price that's been paid for failure is, you know, massive in terms of the lives lost, what's happened to that country, the refugee crisis, and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, anyone who was in power in those years has got to look back and think, well, what could we have done differently? Now, there are an awful lot of people who say nothing, actually, you almost intervene too much anyway. But I don't uh, agree with that. And I think specifically on the chemical weapons attack, if you draw a red line in international affairs uh, over the use of chemical weapons, when that red line is crossed, you must act. And I think it was a mistake not to act.
1: By Barack Obama, by President Obama.
0: Yeah, I lost the vote in the House of Commons, so couldn't act. Yes, absolutely. And I think it was a mistake not to, to, to act. Not that that would have solved the Syrian crisis. But I think that message about a red line being crossed and not being acted on, I think that resonated not just in Damascus but also um, elsewhere around the world.
1: How much do you worry about the impact of President Trump on the international order and any sort of architecture with which, to come back to the theme of your book overall, the the world can go forward more together than, than by harvesting and in the end sort of boosting differences between major countries?
0: Well, I, I worry because ultimately, ultimately, if we want to deal with global poverty, if we want to deal with climate change, if we want to make the world more secure, you, you, you know, these international institutions are completely imperfect, I accept. And one can be exasperated, particularly if you've sat in meetings of NATO or the EU or the WHO or anywhere else. But, you know, they're all we've got. And so I do worry. I think, though, one has to respect the fact that, you know, there is a a kernel of truth in some of the Trump criticisms, which is if we take NATO for too long, Europe has free ridden on American finances and we need to change that. And that's why we met our uh, defense spending targets when so many other European countries um, didn't. I think we have to understand the fact that, you know, the IMF and World Bank, brilliant though they are, They don't treat the most fragile countries in a sufficiently different way to help them get some sort of growth and progress. The WHO is a sort of classic example at the moment. You've got the Chinese saying they don't want any reforms to it. Uh, and you've got the Americans saying they won't even talk about it. And, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, that is a desperate place to be. In I've tried to do my bit by saying, look, if we can't reform this organisation, which I think does need reform, can we at least establish a sort of global virus surveillance organisation linking together scientists and universities and institutions around the world? So at least we spot and deal with and prepare for the next virus better than we did the the last one. So, you know what's required is wholesale reform of these things would be great, but that's probably not going to happen. So we need at least some good patchwork, uh, some so good mending. To try I, I, and I wonder mend if we're them.
1: getting a job application on air from uh, a former British Prime Minister is that, it, no. that, that you'd like to lead. Is it one of these big institutions you might like to lead? No,
0: I'm not a I'm not a scientist, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm absolutely the wrong person to lead this organisation. But I think my experience with um, Ebola where the WHO was sort of slow to react to what was happening. I think we've seen that in spades, as it were, with um, Corona, with Covid. And I think the problem is simply explained that, you know, the world relies on countries telling the WHO what's happening and then the WHO telling us. And that just doesn't happen. Countries are embarrassed when they're confronted with a health problem. And the WHO is quite riven with politics and sometimes doesn't want to be as frank as it should about what's going on. So let's correct that. But no, I'm certainly not applying for a, uh, a job in that organisation that I'm suggesting. I think it needs someone with a far greater understanding of, of, of science than I have. But nonetheless, as I say, wholesale reform would be a lovely thing, but you could devote your life to that and still not change them. But I think trying to, to make do and mend with these organisations would, would be at least a start
1: selling UK PLC which is another way of talking about how we get into international trade international organisation what the role of the UK is your your big theme you believed in pushing Britain out into the world as a trading power you know I covered a lot of that it was very much obviously it was part of the, the DNA I mean I got the impression there wasn't much you wouldn't do to, to to pursue that now this is where things then get a bit tricky isn't it which is that the, the margins of what seems to be a good idea are not and I'm, I'm thinking about the deployment there of Prince Andrew to drive up business for the UK. I remember him being at, at Davos very much with that sort of that role behind him. Very popular he was then at, at the time, but to judge by the number of people in the room who who came to rub shoulders with him. But do you regret supporting Prince Andrew in 2011 when he was already being widely criticised for his links with Jeffrey Epstein, who was a convicted sex offender?
0: I, I My memory of this is it was during my prime ministership that Prince Andrew stepped back from his trade role. Uh, and I think that was right that it happened. Um, it's certainly true that I wanted to use every lever at my disposal to try and drive uh, trade and investment. I led some of the biggest trade missions that had ever left these shores. We encouraged investment into every part of our economy. Um, and we recognise that while sometimes you may not approve of everything another regime does, um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to them about the areas where maybe you are able to make progress and uh, uh, agree things. Yeah, I is a much think more specific
1: was... question. This is that you did offer your support to Prince Andrew, who was in this sort of ambassadorial role, whatever the technicalities of it, when he was being criticised for his links with Jeffrey Epstein, a convicted sex offender, and we know where that you know, how that story has uh, sort of well. As I, I say, my memory so is serious.
0: The, the 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 my memory of this is that the Prince Andrew stepping back. Uh, from that role happened while I was Prime Minister. I don't want to go into the minutiae of what happened and who said what to whom and who was responsible. but I suppose
1: my question is do you regret using using him in that role in the first place? Of course he stepped back from it when he to, you know, when things became hot. but do you regret using him? Well
0: I, I think that yes that's my that's my 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 point is I think that's something that I helped to um, something that was rightly done, if I can put it that way.
1: Last uh, thought, uh, exciting new bedside reading. I'm sure on your bedside table shortly, if it isn't already, is Sasha Swires, <laughs> The diary of an MP's wife. Yes, <laughs> you're already laughing. Who um, you knows? Not in the Biden you share. She was married to uh, a minister from your government. Actually, also quite a uh, they were close friends of yours. Um, she sort of has basically portrayed this quarter. She says a very particular narrow tribe of Britain. She says under the Cameron government and their hangers on enough to repulse the ordinary man, um, or woman perhaps. Uh, Would he be hanging out with the Swires any time soon? And have, has she got a point?
0: Well, I, um, well, I think, uh, without entering into extensive literary criticism, I think there's a, there's a sort of flaw in that <laughs> theory, which is this wasn't a government of, of chums. Um, in fact, one of the beefs in the book is that I... Um, sacked her husband, uh, a very good friend of mine, from the shadow cabinet uh, when I was leader of the opposition. Uh, and then, yes, I did make him a minister in the government. He was a very effective foreign office minister, and I kept him there, and I didn't put him in the cabinet. And that's part of the beef um, that, um, that that this somehow was unjust. So I don't think you can argue it was a government of chums if chums didn't get um, preferential <laughs> treatment, which they didn't you know, friendship in politics and working together and recognising you're part of a team, uh, is vitally important and I don't regret that. But I don't think friendship ever tipped over into um any form of cronyism. And the fact that as I say, Do, do, do I fired you think him the you, you is a bit of a betrayal. cabinet, I think rather makes my point.
1: It was so a bit of a bit betrayal think, to have this kind nobody, of nobody, private nobody, stuff out nobody, there.
0: Nobody likes having um uh elements of their uh, private life or things they said in private um uh put out there nobody likes that but look I've long since learned that you know if you if you want uh, your privacy respected and if you don't want your uh character and other things to be be questioned then then politics probably isn't the um career for you I think you have to put up with some of this stuff
1: she also says this it scares the shit out of me she says it scares me, Should we say more politely, that people don't see Boris Johnson as the calculating machine. He really is. Thoughts?
0: Look, I think that Boris has strengths, which I've talked about, um, of leadership, of communication, of rallying people to a cause. Uh, He's doing the most difficult job. I mean, we all like to think as prime minister we had difficult circumstances, massive budget deficits, Ebola crises, Syrian crises, migration crises, or in the case of um, John Major or Tony Blair, foot and mouth and BSE and all the rest of it, they pale into insignificance compared with the challenge this government faces. And, uh, you know, I have huge sympathy for the fact that he's doing a good job in incredibly difficult circumstances. And The way I sort of like to think about it is every day as Prime Minister, even in sort of normal times, you have four or five difficult decisions you've got to make perhaps each day. When you've got this, you are making decisions on the hour. Uh, And of course, some of them will seem inconsistent or not quite right or different to the announcement that was made in previous days. But just think about Think about one element. Think about social gatherings. What about marriages? What about funerals? What about bar mitzvahs? Minister, can you make this decision? I mean, it is really difficult. They are having a tough time, and they have my complete um, uh, respect and support for for dealing with a -a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. Thanks very much for
1: coming on this show. David Cameron.
0: Great pleasure. Very good to talk with you, and uh, thank you for having me
1: on we'd love to know what you think is all fair in love, war and EU negotiations or has Boris Johnson pushed it too far by threatening to renege on a deal he made oh, must be a whole year ago write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at economist radio you might tell us whether you run a chamocracy of your own and whether politicians should endeavor not to for your best introductory offer to all of our reporting analysis and comment go to economist.com slash podcast offer the link is in the show notes i'm anne McElvoy, and in london this is the economist